0: Welcome to this first edition of Turtle Talks, meanderings, musings, mutterings, more than a monologue or two, on life from scripture. This is your host, the voice of the turtle, Mike Harrison, and this morning we're going to start with catfish and cod. Persons, places, things that make life miserable, or at the very least, messy. We're going to take our scripture from Jeremiah chapter 48 and the 11th verse. It reads like this Moab has been at ease since his youth. He has settled like wine on its dregs, he has not been emptied from jar to jar were gone into exile and therefore he retains his flavor and his aroma has not changed Moab is a nation you might say born in a cave you see their story begins with Lot the nephew of Abraham who came with Abraham and his family From Ur of the Chaldees. The Bible tells us that as Abraham arrived in the land of Canaan and began to prosper, that Lot, prospering with him, eventually told his uncle, Hey, the land is just too small for both of us to reside together. And so Abraham graciously said, Well, you take a look, and wherever you want to go, I'll go the opposite direction. And the Bible tells us that Lot looked down at the flood plain of the Jordan, where Sodom and Gomorrah was situated, and he surmised that it looked like the Garden of Eden, well watered and beautiful. And so, we find Lot pinching his tent towards Sodom, and then we find Lot in chapter 19 of Genesis living in Sodom, and not just living in Sodom, but sitting at the gates of Sodom, which is where those who held the levers of power found themselves on a daily basis. Now, Second Peter chapter 2, verse 8 says that Lot's righteous soul was vexed with the wickedness of Sodom, but he couldn't remove himself from the situation there. He was deeply invested in that city, in that culture. And this has prompted some to say that the epitaph for Lot could be saved man, wasted life. And this begins to play out as Abraham is told by God that God is going to judge the wickedness in Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, Abraham pleads that if there are just ten righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah, could the cities be spared? And yet, not ten could be found, so when God goes to judge the city with fire and brimstone, Lot, being unable to leave, even though warned by angels, was forcibly removed. He, his wife, and his two virgin daughters. And being set outside the city, they were told not to look back. And yet his wife, so tempted, turned around to see the destruction of the city, looked longingly on the place that she had called home, and there was turned into a pillar of salt. So now Lot and his two daughters are alone. They flee to a cave outside the city of Zoar, And so troubled and upset by the situation, so corrupted by the culture that they've lived in for some time. The daughters devise a plan, fearful, that they're the only people left on earth. They find wine somewhere, somehow. They get their father drunk to the point that apparently he passed out or he had no reserves to withstand their advances. And on one night, one of the daughters slept with him. And on a second night, they repeated their actions and the second daughter slept with him. And from these two incestuous relationships came two children. And from those two children came two nations. One son would produce the nation of Ammon, and the second son would produce the nation we know as Moab. Moab was actually then a cousin to Israel. Because Moab was a cousin to Israel, therefore God protected them from Israel. As Israel was a rising power headed into what would become the promised land, Deuteronomy chapter 2 verse 9, Then the Lord said to me, that's Moses, Do not harass Moab nor provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given R to the sons of Lot as a possession. And so there's this grace and there's this mercy by God on the nation of Moab, even though they had a less than stellar beginning. And yet, even though Moab was protected from Israel by God, Moab was antagonistic towards Israel, most of their history. In Numbers 22, we see the first of the major confrontations when Balak, the king of Moab, actually hires this soothsayer slash seer slash prophet, a guy named Balaam, to curse the Israelites. But God only allowed Balaam to bless Israel, and therefore he saved him, his son Israel, from the hand of Moab. A little later in the book of Judges, there's this Moabite king named Eglon. Uh, The Bible says he was a very fat man. He oppressed the Israelites until the people cried out, and then God sent a judge, a left-handed man, which kind of speaks of military might and craftiness, a man named Ehud, to deliver Israel. and He gained a private audience with the king, and then Uh, Grossly stabbed the king with a dagger in the stomach and the fat closed over the hilt and the king's entrails poured out. And therefore, the Israelites were delivered from the hand of Moab yet again. But there was one way that they could not escape Moab, and that is Moab's worship system. And so Moab had a chief god that was named Chemosh, Chemosh was a god that required child sacrifice. Uh, He was synonymous with the ancient god Molech. And the Moabite stone calls him Ashtar Chemosh. He is the masculinization of ancient Babylonian goddess Astarte or Semiramis. And so Babylon's this physical location in ancient times situated in what is modern-day Iraq. And yet it was the beginning, there in Genesis 10, of a world system that would oppose God's design for humanity. And this would be politically and spiritually. And it continues to this day. So all the ancient gods that people worshipped, all the way down to the time of Rome, they were birthed out of these Babylonian gods, Nimrod, Tammuz, Semiramis. And so, eventually, Solomon was, as king, a man who did not listen to God. And when he was told not to marry many wives, he did just the opposite. And Solomon, actually, the Bible tells us, imported the gods of his wives into Israel. And Solomon, in doing so, imported Chemosh to Israel. In 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 7 and 8 says, On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Same god, different peoples. He did the same for all his foreign wives, who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. And the Bible says their sons and their daughters... That is, the Israelites' sons and their daughters they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. This sordid history would cause God to state in Psalm chapter 60, verse 8 Moab is my wash pot. And in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3, God would say, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Now, this would seem like the Lord is done with Moab, but we find over and over in Scripture the truth to be displayed that where sin abounds, God's grace abounds much more also. And so, Moab plays an integral role in Israel's history, not just as a nemesis, but also uh, as a savior. Because Ruth, you see, is Ruth the Moabitess. The book of Ruth is written about a Moabite girl who marries into a Jewish family. Her husband dies. She decides to stay with her mother-in-law, a woman named Naomi. Naomi. Naomi is bitter at famine and at loss. She tells her daughter in law, You need to go back to your people. But famously, in the book of Ruth, there's one of the most beautiful poems found in the Bible where Ruth says to Naomi, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God and where you die I will die and there I will be buried the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts you and me and so staying with Naomi gleaning from the corners of the field where the poor would have allotted sustenance by the law Ruth runs into this man named Boaz rich and and single, and also the kinsman redeemer of the family, one who can buy back that which is lost. And so, beautifully, romantically, Ruth and Boaz fall in love, and Boaz marries Ruth, and she becomes the great-grandmother of King David and in the line of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And in Matthew chapter 1, Ruth is mentioned in the lineage of Jesus. I shared with you all that about Moab to emphasize that Moab was a constant thorn in the side of the Israelites for many, many years. And yet interestingly, when you think about the text that we read from Isaiah chapter 48 and the 11th verse, God says to them that Moab had had no thorn in their side. They'd been at ease since its youth. He, Moab, has settled like wine upon its dregs. He's not been emptied from jar to jar. Or has he gone into exile. And therefore he retains his flavor and his aroma was not changed. What I know about ancient winemaking is very little, maybe just enough to be dangerous. But what I understand is, as they would allow the wine to age, they would pour it from time to time, from jar to jar, or vessel to vessel, and that so the dregs wouldn't settle to the bottom, sour and then taint the wine, uh, that its flavor wouldn't ever be truly realized. It would be nasty if it wasn't poured from vessel to vessel. And in like manner, Moab was, by God's estimation, never poured from vessel to vessel, so its, its dregs, its flavor, had never really changed, for the better is the idea. And likewise, in our lives, sometimes God allows us to be poured from vessel to vessel so uh, our stench won't remain there, whether we smell it or not. Now, since not everyone here is a wine maker and a wine drinker, I would like to just share with you a little story, the catfish and the codfish. You see, while... Israel had had a thorn in its side, that be Moab, for many, many years. Moab had never been poured from vessel to vessel, and so Moab was uh, just content to be where they were, and they never were becoming what they could be. And so codfish. Codfish is famous for its taste. It's highly desirable, but they're difficult to get to market. And years ago, when codfish were first being shipped as the story goes they froze them but then they noticed that the flavor was lost during shipping somebody came up with the idea to put them in tanks and ship them across the country in actual seawater but even then the codfish would arrive at the market three or four days later and would have lost so much of their flavor and so much of its flakiness they were soft and mushy and so finally a creative person solved the problem. And the cod were placed in the seawater tank with a couple of catfish in with them. And the catfish, the natural enemy of the codfish, during the shipping would chase the codfish all around the tank the whole time. And when the fish arrived at market, they were as fresh as newly caught with no loss of flavor or texture. You see, uh, the catfish kept the cod from becoming stale catfish kept them fresh and as we travel through our life we are like these codfish we become still and stagnant and uh, we lose our flavor and so what god does is sometimes he drops a catfish or two into the tank chase us around difficult people difficult circumstances things that we wouldn't have picked places we would have avoided And maybe, just maybe, it's these difficult challenges, the catfish in our lives, or the pouring from vessel to vessel, that would make us grow, the Bible proposes, into people that have the aroma of Christ, that have the character of God. And God always cares way more about character than I do. And certainly this preaches way better than it lives. Nevertheless, the Word of God is true. May He sink it down deeply into our hearts. Well, this will be the end of today's episode. Just let me end by encouraging all you codfish out there to... Not avoid the catfish in your life or be bitter at the catfish in your life or pray imprecatory prayers towards the catfish in your life. But by God's grace, embrace the catfish in your life and pray that they will make you stronger and keep you from being stale. Give you uh, meat on your bones instead of turning flabby. And that in fact, you would be transformed into the image of Christ, that we wouldn't be conformed into the image of this world. And remember, the catfish are probably the ones closest to us, those in our homes. I'd say that most spouses would say the catfish in their life is their opposite. Maybe your children, it may be your boss, it may be a co worker. Whoever it is, Father God, help us to embrace the catfish. And for those who we are their catfish, let them embrace us as we all are marching towards glory together. This is the Voice of the Turtle, signing off.